Good morning. It is uh, really, really good to be back. It's uh, been about a year since I've been here and had a chance to share. And uh, as Steve said, I, I also look forward to this Sunday. And as you know, we're in the middle of this series that we're going through as a church called Storyline where we're looking at the major events of Scripture. And what we're doing is we're choosing key stories and key events, and we're connecting them to the story, to the arc of the entire Scripture. And last week, we finished up several weeks talking about King David. And of course, Scripture says that David was the man after God's own heart. And in many ways, David faithfully led the nation of Israel into much prosperity. But as we saw last week, David was also not without his own sin, and sometimes he could even sin grievously. But I think what made David different and what made him a man after God's own heart was that when he sinned, he repented of his sin and he threw himself on the mercy of God. And so today, we're going to move forward in that story, and we're going to get our first look at the nation of Israel post-David. And so I think there's a natural question that should be on our minds as we move forward in this story, and that's this. Will the new kings, will the future kings, will they be like David, or will they revert to the ways of King Saul? And so as we've looked at David's story, we've been camped out in the book of 2 Samuel. Well, today, I'm actually going to be in the book of 2 Chronicles. So if your Bible happens to be marked in 2 Samuel, what you've got to do is keep going to the right, and you've got to move through the book of 1 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, and the book of 1 Chronicles, and we'll get to 2 Chronicles. Now, I will tell you that the division of Samuel and the division of Kings and the division of Chronicles into two books is something that happened much later. They're really just one big book, and you can think of them kind of as part one and part two for the sake of of keeping them of reasonable size. But... I will say this, if you start to read Samuel and you read Kings and then you get to Chronicles, you're going to see something real interesting because you've been moving along sequentially and all of a sudden you get to 1 Chronicles and the narrator, the author goes back. In fact, he goes way back. He gives you 12 chapters of genealogies that take you from Adam to David And then this narrator, I'll call him the chronicler. I know that's not very creative, but it is very descriptive, right? The chronicler then picks up the story of David. And as you read it, if you're familiar with the story of David from Samuel, you start to notice something. You recognize some things. But you also say, but hey, he he left that part out. Or he added more details here. Or wait, he told me something I didn't know before. And that raises a question. Why? I think the simple answer is is that the chronicler is writing much later than the author of Samuel and also the author of Kings. See, this Chronicles is usually dated around 450 B.C. And that's about 500 years removed, give or take, from the events that he's writing about. And see, time provides new perspectives. Time provides a new audience. And that new audience has new questions. So I guess what I'm saying is that the chronicler has the advantage of hindsight. And and so that's why I want to use his account for our study today. So I'll I'll come back to that, I promise, at the end, that issue of perspective and hindsight. Now, our main passage today is going to be 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
But in order to get us there, I want to look at some passages at the end of 1 Chronicles and the beginning of 2 Chronicles that will lead us up to that main passage. But before we get going, I want to sort of tell you where we're going. And I want to ask you to consider four things as we move through these passages today. First of all, I want you to look for God's promise. Secondly, God's presence. Thirdly, our problem. And finally, fourth, God's provision. Now, if you're wondering if I worked hard to get that alliteration, yes, I did, especially that last P. But I really am happy with the words. I think it's pretty descriptive there. So first, God's promise. Well, I mentioned that David was not without sin. And one of the evidences of that is the fact that David had many wives. And because he had many wives, consequently, David had many sons. And his culture, and I dare say maybe even our culture, would have an expectation And that expectation would be that David's eldest son would ascend to the throne, right? That's what we would expect, and I guarantee you that's what his culture would have expected. But just like God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, and just like God chose Jacob instead of Esau, God chooses once again to remind the nation of Israel and to remind each of us that his ways are not our ways, not at all. Because God chooses David's son Solomon to be king. Now, not only was Solomon not the oldest, there was something else about Solomon that you should know. Solomon was a son of Bathsheba. And as we saw last week, the events that lead to Bathsheba becoming one of David's wives are, quite frankly, pretty ugly. And they're fraught with multiple sins on the part of David. So it's certainly not something that you would make up, and it's certainly not something you would draw up. But it is a powerful reminder that God remains sovereign in everything, even the sins of his creatures, which he often uses to accomplish his purposes. And I want to start by looking at a very specific promise regarding Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. In 1 Chronicles 22, we have this scene, and it's David talking to his son Solomon. Let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, Then he, that's David, called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood. And you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father." And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now this passage is called by theologians the Davidic covenant. And all that means is that God is here making a promise to David. A covenant. And God doesn't break his covenants. And in fact, even though I titled this God's promise, we could have said God's promises. Because there's two promises here, right? There's a short-term promise and there's a long-term promise. First, the short-term promise. David's son will build a permanent house for God. We simply know it as the temple. Now remember, up until this point in time, God's presence with his people was taking place via the tabernacle. 
And the tabernacle really was a tent. It was a fancy tent, but it was a tent nonetheless. And a tent makes a lot of sense for a people that are on the move. But now Israel is settled in the promised land. And the time has come for a more permanent dwelling for God with his people. And David wanted to be the one to build the temple. And I don't think this was any evidence of, of any sin on David's part. I think this was a good, a good thing for David to want to do this. But God has other plans. See, David was a man of war. And make no mistake, those wars were commanded by God. And God gave David the victories. But a man of peace would build God's home. You might be familiar with the Hebrew term shalom. Oftentimes, Jewish people use it as both a greeting and a farewell. The most common English translation for shalom is peace. In fact, the name of Solomon is actually derived from shalom. You can even see it in the English, right? Solomon, shalom. Shalom, though, is more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom implies completeness. It implies wholeness, soundness, welfare, and yes, peace. Now, if scripture is clear about anything, it's clear about this. Shalom comes only from God. It is a gift from God to his people. So I think it's entirely appropriate that God's house would be built by a king whose reign would be characterized by the blessings of shalom. Now, what's that long-term promise? It's right there at the end of the passage we read. It says that the throne of Solomon would be established forever. Now, before I move on and tell you a little bit more about Solomon, I just want to stop right there because we have to stop and take a moment to marvel at the greatness of the grace of God. Consider what happens here. David comes to God and he has it in his mind to build God a house. But what does our God say? No, David, you won't build me a house. I'll build a house out of you. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. What about Solomon? We're going to get to the temple build and dedication pretty quickly. But I want to say some things about Solomon. Because he starts so very well. But I want to emphasize that this is no accident. In, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25, we read that the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. So it was no accident that Solomon started so well. And in fact, if you move forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, God comes to Solomon, speaks to him directly in a dream. And he asks him a pretty amazing question. He says, Solomon, what can I give you? Can you imagine that? The king of the universe comes to you and says, I want to give you something. What should it be? Well, I don't know how you would respond. In fact, I don't know how I would respond. But today I want to look at how Solomon responds. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, if you'll look with me at verse 10, Solomon says to God, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. 
Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So as God does, God blesses him beyond his imagination. God is with Solomon, and the results are truly outstanding. In fact, if you read Chronicles, the Chronicler actually tells us that during Solomon's reign, silver and gold were as common as stones. Silver and gold were as common as stones. So that brings us to God's presence. If you read the first four chapters of 2 Chronicles, you hear about the planning and the labor that went into the construction of the temple. And there was a lot that went into it. A lot of resources, a lot of, a lot of craftsmen, a lot of laborers, a lot of time. In chapter 5, though, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to the most inner sanctuary of the temple. We call that area the Holy of Holies. That's the place where the high priest could go one time a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. In chapter 6, we, we see the description of a proclamation of blessing for the people by Solomon. And he gives an extensive prayer of dedication. And this sets the stage for our passage today, for chapter 7. And I want to begin there in verse 1 and just look at the first three verses. Chronicles 7, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the temple of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Note first the effect of the presence of God. Even the priests... The priests who'd prepared, the priests who'd consecrated themselves, even they could not bear to be in the presence of God. Martin Selman, in his commentary on 2 Chronicles, put it this way. He said, As soon as the temple is open for business, all the carefully planned ceremonies and services had to be suspended because God takes over the entire building himself. In verse 3, we see what happens to the people. Yeah, I can just imagine this, right? The, the people are out there outside the temple and all of a sudden they see the priests come running out and, and the smoke and the fire probably following them. And so how do they respond? They hit the pavement. They are face down in worship. Now, when we think of worship, right? I say worship, what do you think of? Singing, praise, Maybe even exuberant praise. Well, not if you're raised Baptist like I was, right? We don't want to get too excited up in here. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm not here today to dispute that type of worship. It is a biblical type of worship. After all, David himself leaped and danced before the Lord. But I do want to ask, when we think of worship, do we ever think of falling face down? even metaphorically. And I think today's passage is a reminder that that type of response is entirely appropriate sometimes. And it's also a biblical component of worship. Because see, God is a big, holy, powerful God. And sometimes the right response, indeed sometimes the only response, is to bow down in awe of that kind of greatness. 
You know, that brings us to our problem, right? See, the problem for the priests and the problem for the people of Israel is really the universal problem. It's your problem and it's my problem too. Because how can sinful people enter the presence of that kind of holy God? And I'm going to give it to you straight. It's pretty simple. They can't. You can't. I can't. Not on our own. But look at the verse, end of verse 3 for a necessary reminder. The Lord isn't just big, holy, and powerful. The Lord is good. And His steadfast love endures forever. So they and we and I are not left on our own because God makes provision. God makes provision. Now, if we were to keep reading verses 4 through 10, we would read about the dedication of the temple It was a lengthy time, many days of sacrifices, praise, prayer, and feasting. And then Solomon sends the people home. And God has something to share with him. And that's where I want to pick up the story in verse 11. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Let me stop right there. What that tells you is that that short-term promise that Solomon would build the temple complete. God kept his promise. It was done. Verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. In verse 14 is God's provision. We call it repentance. And you might be thinking, well, hey, wait a minute. Mark talked about repentance last week, and you're talking about repentance this week. I am. Remember that overarching story that we're connecting all the dots to? Repentance is a big, big part of that. And it's going to come up a lot this year, as you see it already has. You know, there's not many verses that make their way onto yard signs and bumper stickers and the like, but 2 Chronicles 7, 14 is one such verse. Now, you may have seen one of these. Um, It's often associated with the National Day of Prayer in this country, Uh, and the sentiment really is something along the lines of, if America will return to God in repentance, then God will heal what ails our land. I want to say something about such sentiments, and I, I, I really am not intending to be controversial or confrontational, and I certainly am not here to impugn the motives of anyone. But I do think it's an opportunity for us as 21st century believers to consider how do we take this passage from the Old Testament that was written a long time ago to different people living in different circumstances and properly apply it to our lives today. First, some things I think we can all agree on. There is much in our culture and our country that fails to align to God's directive, to God's law. Second, our instincts and desire to see our culture and our country aligned to God's law are good and they are right. 
We should want that. Because make no mistake, genuine human flourishing is directly proportional to the alignment of people to God's law. Period. Third, we should pray for our country and its leaders at all levels. And that includes those for whom we did not cast our vote. This is where you say, oh, he's done gone from preaching to meddling, right? <laughs> but with all that being said, I want to show you something about four, verse 14. Verse 14 starts this way. If my people who were called by my name, this provision, this promise, this invitation is for God's people. It's not for some generic God. It's for Yahweh's people. It's for the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm here to tell you, if you are united to Christ, that means you. This promise is for you. This invitation is for you. And don't hear me say, I am not saying that we as Christians have replaced the nation of Israel as God's people. I'm not talking about replacement theology. I'm talking about expansion theology. I'm talking about the grafting in of a wild olive branch into the root of the faith of Abraham. That's who we are as Christians So what does that mean? It means that repentance should start in the church. May repentance start in your heart. May repentance start right here in my heart. You know, how how does that look? Or you you say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean confess my sins? Yeah, absolutely. But more than that even... Let us repent of the attitudes and beliefs that cause the sin. And you know, we can do that individually. Any one of us who's a believer can walk boldly into the throne room of God because we have an intercessor in our Lord. But we can also do that corporately. And so in that vein, I I wanted to try to maybe model that, maybe lead us in in a bit of repentance this morning. And in so doing, I'll, I'll share with you that you get insight into my own struggles. And I think that's okay because they're probably pretty common. And there, maybe there's some of your struggles too. And if they're not, if these aren't your struggles, then here's what I would ask. Pray for me and pray for those of us that do struggle with these things. But what if we said, Lord, we repent that all too often we treasure the gift more than the giver? What if we said, Lord, we repent that we find our identity in our career, in our relationships, in our status, in our bank account, instead of in our Savior? What if we said, Lord, we repent that we worship a thousand different things smaller than Jesus? Oh, how we might affect the culture around us if we were a people of repentance. I want to keep going. I know that's heavy. I want to keep going and talk a little bit about that long-term promise. So let's keep going in chapter 7. In verse 17, God continues talking to Solomon and he says, And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne. As I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. 
But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he brought all this disaster on them. That's pretty dark, right? And the the word I jotted down here in my notes this morning was foreboding. See, God's given Solomon a warning, and I think it's pretty clear. God's telling Solomon, walk in my ways. And I want to say something about that, because I think the context is clear. Remember, we just came from a passage on repentance. God has no delusions about Solomon or his people living a sin-free life. God made provision. What God is saying when he says, walk in my ways, is follow my law, and when you fail, because you will, turn to me in repentance. But God is also being equally clear that if Solomon will do this, then his descendants will continue to rule in Israel in perpetuity, and the temple will remain in all its glory. But the converse is also true. Abandon God's ways. Fail to follow his law. Fail to seek him in repentance, and they will forfeit both the land and the temple. And this brings me back to where I started. Remember when I said that the chronicler had the advantage of hindsight? That he had perspective being 500 years removed? And so I want to go through some things and tell you what the chronicler knew. And so really I want to bring you up to speed with where the chronicler was in history. So what did the chronicler know? Spoiler alert for the next few weeks here. That's one of the beauties of of me not preaching the next few weeks, right? I can just spoil everything, right? So um, I I don't think I will. Here's what the chronicler knew. He knew that although Solomon began really, really well, Solomon finished very poorly. You see, despite being blessed with wisdom, wealth, and peace... Despite authoring large chunks of our Old Testament, at the end of his life, Solomon chased after other gods. And his nation followed him. In fact, in the very next generation, his nation was divided between north and south. The northern kingdom embarked on an accelerated descent into sin that lasted a little more than 200 years. And it ended with their conquest and exile at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. You've heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel, perhaps? That's what happened to them. The Assyrians removed them from the land. The southern kingdom was where Jerusalem and the temple was located, and it was more of an up-and-down story, I'll tell you, but its trajectory was downward nonetheless. It manages to make it about 350 years before it ends in conquest and exile by the Babylonian Empire. It also ended with the destruction of Solomon's temple. God kept his promise there too. You might be saying, but wait a minute. You said that God said he would make Solomon's throne last forever. He did. And so God preserved a remnant in Babylon 
He was faithful. He brought his people back to the land. The temple was rebuilt, but not to the glory of Solomon's temple. And there was no Davidic king that was on the throne. In fact, those people remained under the thumb of the Persian Empire. That was the time of the chronicler. He's writing with all of that in mind. And so I think it's no wonder that he chose to focus on God's promises and God's provisions. Because I believe he wanted his readers to know this. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises will always stand. And his provision is always available to his people. Well, the band's going to come as I wrap things up. But I want to think through a few things with you. I wonder if the chronicler ever thought about what would happen if in his lifetime, a Davidic king was returned to the throne of Israel. He must have wondered, would the new king be like David? Or maybe at least like Solomon was in the beginning? Or would the new king be like so many of those that followed? And if, if so, how long would this new kingdom last? And how long would this new temple stand? See, the chronicler had to know that if something didn't change, history would just repeat itself. Folks, I'm here to tell you today, something changed. See, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says two things that are relevant to our passage today. In verse 6, Jesus said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. At the end of verse 42, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. I think Jesus was being a little bit metaphorical because I'm here to tell you it wasn't a something, it was a someone. See, Jesus Christ is the ultimate son of David. He's the one that's greater than Solomon. He's building a kingdom that will never end. He's calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Maybe he's calling some of you today. Jesus Christ is also the ultimate provision because the temple of his body was crucified on a Roman cross. But three days later, he raised it up imperishable. See, Jesus Christ permanently solved the problem of how sinful people can enter the presence of a holy God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So let me close with good news, the best news. If you're united to him by grace through faith, then you have been resurrected with him. Have been. Past tense. Done deal. No take backs. See, it wasn't a something. It was a someone. Jesus changes everything. 